Under Alien Skies. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Are you a fan of The Bad Astronomer? We're about to dive into Phil Plate's brand new book, Under Alien Skies, a sightseer's guide to the universe. We'll bring you some of the latest space news from around the globe. And as always, we'll check in with Bruce Betts for our What's Up segment and a chance to win a copy of Under Alien Skies in our space trivia contest. Congratulations to the European Space Agency on the successful launch of the JUICE mission. The Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer is now on its way to Jupiter. It launched at 5.15 a.m. Pacific Time, that's 12.14 p.m. UTC, on April 14th, atop an Ariane 5 rocket from the European spaceport in Kourou, French Guiana. The mission will explore Jupiter and three of its largest icy moons, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto. The spacecraft will arrive in the Jovian system in 2031, so we're all going to have to be patient. But when it gets there, it's going to spend two and a half years orbiting Jupiter and conducting flybys of these icy moons before it settles into orbit around Ganymede and spends at least nine months there. We'll give you all the details next week when I speak to Olivier Vitas, project scientist for the JUICE mission. In other space news, SpaceX says that their Starship vehicle is ready to fly. The new spaceship, which SpaceX hopes to someday carry astronauts to Mars, now awaits the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration's approval for its first uncrewed launch test. With the combination of the super-heavy rocket first stage and the Starship's upper stage, this would be the largest and most powerful rocket ever launched. NASA has funded its latest batch of far-out ideas. The Innovative Advanced Concepts Program funds futuristic projects that may have the potential to revolutionize space exploration. This year's winning projects include a quantum radar system for remote sensing, a plan to pulverize incoming asteroids, an extremely high-speed propulsion system driven by radioactivity, and so much more. And you'll love this one. The latest, most detailed global map of Mars ever created is now available to the public. You may have caught Bruce Betts and me talking about this map in last week's episode, because it's awesome. Stitching together 110,000 individual images taken over six years by the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, scientists at Caltech created a 5.7 terapixel map of Mars. You heard that right. 5.7 terapixels. If you play around with this thing, you can actually zoom in to a resolution of 5 meters per pixel. And lastly, If you haven't had a chance to check out the new picture of Uranus from the James Webb Space Telescope, it's our Wow of the Week in the April 14th edition of The Downlink, our weekly newsletter. The Downlink includes links to all of these stories and so much more. You can read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org slash downlink. Our guest this week is Phil Plate, also known as the Bad Astronomer. Phil is here to discuss his new book, Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. It takes us on a tour of the cosmos like never before. As an astronomer and science communicator, Phil has captured the imaginations of space enthusiasts for years, and his latest work is no exception. Under Alien Skies transports the reader to 10 of the most spectacular sights the universe has to offer, using the latest scientific research and Phil's own creative flair. Phil has authored a couple popular science books, namely Bad Astronomy and Death from the Skies. 
He's also appeared on numerous TV shows like The Universe and How the Universe Works. I'm personally a big fan of his work on Crash Course Astronomy. Phil's last appearance on Planetary Radio was back in 2011, so it's wonderful to have him back on the show. Thanks for joining me, Phil. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to dive into your new book because I had a wonderful time reading this, and I've spoken with several friends and other Planetary Society members that were also really happy to hear that you have a new book coming out. Well, that's terrific. I, I love hearing that. Your new book is called Under Alien Skies, A Sightseer's Guide to the Universe. And right out the door, I have to ask, is this a reference to The Hitchhiker's Guide? And why did you do that? <laughs> um, it, it didn't mean to be, and it wasn't really intended to be, because, of course, The Hitchhiker's Guide is uh, a useless tome that'll basically just get you killed, if I recall correctly from reading all the books back when I was in like high school and college. And this one also won't help you stay alive, uh, I, I think, if you actually visit these places, because you know if you go anywhere but Earth, you're going to be dead within seconds. However, if you do visit these places and you, you want to kind of know what you're in for, if you want to have the experience of visiting the moon or Saturn or something like that, that's what I was trying to do. And the trend these days is to always have a subtitle with a book. You can't just have a book titled, you know, this. It has to be this colon that. And I was trying to think of something to, to put in there. And I thought, well, it is. It's a sightseer's guide to the universe. It's what it is. Uh, instead of just you know, writing a, a sort of a straightforward science book saying, here's how black holes work. It was more like, you're in a spaceship, you are passing by a black hole. What do you see? What do you experience? What happens when, when you do this? And uh, that's when I realized this really is more like a guidebook than it is a descriptive astronomy book. And I really like that mechanic because, as you said, there's many books you can pick up. It'll just tell you what a black hole is like. But getting those little story blurbs in between really kind of made it feel fun and interactive, a little bit halfway between like an actual novel and a science book. <laughs> Why did you choose to write it that way? In my last book, Death from the Skies, apparently also I'm under contract to have the word skies in all of my books. Um, and that's, that's my own fault. It's just that's the way the titles work out. But in Death from the Skies, I wrote about all the different ways that the universe can try to kill us. So asteroid impacts, solar storms, roving black holes, whatever. And I thought it would be fun to write a short vignette uh, in the beginning of each chapter, sort of describing how these events would unfold. That sort of a mechanical idea I realized would work really well for this book too. And I talked to my publisher about it. Like, do I really want to have a format that's similar to the last book I just wrote? And she said, well, you know, you wrote that book 15 years ago. I try to write a book once a decade or so. In this case, because the point of this book is not simply to describe things, but to actually experience them and say, you are here. Starting each chapter with a, a sort of a science fiction vignette, which is how that works, where you are standing on Mars and this is what's happening around you. And you did a fantastic job of it, because as I was reading through, it, it not only gave the obvious details about these locations, but also really nitty gritty things that I've been asked maybe once in a lifetime. As an example, in, in uh, the first chapter on the moon, you talk about the location of the Earth on the sky and how it would kind of hang generally in the same area because of the way that the moon rotates and all those things. But later on in the chapter, you go into the details about where you could stand on the moon, where the earth was just close enough to the horizon that you might see it rise and set because of that libration. And those are the questions that like people think about, but are really hard to get answers for on the internet unless you deep, deep dive. So I really appreciated that those kinds of details were in there. 
Thank you. It's funny you you mentioned that specific thing because, you know, I've always been told, you know, when I was younger, they say, well, the moon spins at the same rate it goes around the earth. And so we always see the same face. And if you were standing on the moon, the earth would look like it was always in the same spot of the sky. No matter when when you look, it's always in a certain direction. And that's not true because uh, the moon's orbit is elliptical and it's tilted a little bit with respect to the uh, the earth's equator. And so sometimes when it's at the nearest part of its orbit, perigee, when it's closest to Earth, the orbit and the spin don't line up exactly right. And we can see a little bit past what we normally can see on one side of the moon. And that's true east, west, north, and south. And so we actually see a little bit more than 50% of the moon's surface. And what that means is if you're standing on the moon, the Earth is moving around in the sky. And I thought, oh, well, how much? Probably not that much, right? And so I started researching this, looking it up, and it's like, I can't find the answer. I don't know what this is. And it was ridiculously hard to try to find, you know, what is the motion of the Earth in the moon's sky? I wound up using planetarium software, Stellarium, and which is online. It's wonderful. If you don't know Stellarium, it's a great piece of software. It's free. There's a web version and an app, and you can use it to put yourself on the moon or, or just to see what the sky looks like. There's a ton of stuff like that. And the Earth made this enormous ellipse on the sky, so, you know, many, many degrees of, across. And I thought, really? That can't be right. And then I sat down and did the math. I didn't want to do the math because the math is hard, it turns out. But <laughs> yep. then I started drawing diagrams and everything to myself. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this really is a much larger movement than I expected. And then it occurred to me, well, if you're on the quote unquote edge of the moon, the part of the moon where it's right on the limb of the moon as we see from Earth, then, yeah, you're going to see the Earth rise and set over the course of a month. It seemed obvious to me when that thought came up. And it's like, but why doesn't anybody ever talk about this? So I wrote about it. You stop by Saturn and you give this beautiful description of the rings and the moons and what that would be like. And then you skip straight to Pluto. And I was wondering if that was because you were just particularly fascinated with Pluto or if it's because we don't have as much information about you know, Uranus and Neptune. Uranus and Neptune are just boring. Uh, who cares about them? Um, <laughs> I, I sure hope my friend Heidi Hamill listens to this podcast. She's an astronomer friend of mine for a long time, and she she spent her career studying those planets. And yeah, actually, she's I, on our I, board of directors. I'll point her to it. <laughs> oh, is she? I didn't know that. Oh, perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> she's great. Yeah. No, Uranus and Neptune are really interesting, and I've I've observed them any number of times through my own telescope. Uh, but I, I mean, I didn't write about Jupiter. You know, I couldn't write about everything, and the book was already running really long. I mean, oddly enough, from the way I'm answering your questions, I tend to go on a bit. I, I wanted to write about Mercury and Venus. Uh, I wanted to write about other things, but you have to pick and choose. It turns out the universe is quite large and diverse, and there's a lot of neat stuff to see in it. I wasn't going to write about Pluto originally. What really got me to write about it, not just the New Horizons mission, which was so amazing and which showed us so many cool things. It was more that that was the last outpost of the solar system. Whether you think Pluto is a planet or not, and I'm happy to argue because I'm, I'm a gadfly when it comes to that kind of stuff. I like irritating both sides. People who think it's not a planet, people who think it is. No matter what you think of it, it's if you discount Eris, which is also a large round body out there, and probably one or two more that we may not have discovered yet, it's sort of the last sentinel of the solar system. It's the last big object, maybe, before interstellar space. And the idea of 
visiting that, talking, describing about what it would be like to stand there and look up and see its moon Charon up in the sky and looking back toward Earth, which is such a, a human thing to do. You know, you travel all this distance and go, where'd I come from? Let me look back there. Talk about that. But the idea of turning away from the sun on Pluto and looking into the black and thinking, that's it. The solar system is literally behind me and in front of me is the galaxy. And when I thought of that, it's like that one scene, that one line, I kind of have to write at this chapter now because I really want to end on that statement. And that's what I did. I think my favorite one is where the person uh, falls into the rubble pile asteroid. <laughs> and that, that was another one where I was like, is that really correct? And I, I, you know, I double and triple and quadruple checked it. And yeah, I mean, when you think of an asteroid as being a rubble pile, it's hard not to think of it like a pile of rubble on earth where, you know, somebody's constructing a house and they get their bobcat or their bucket loader or whatever, and they scoop up all this crap out of the ground. And it's loaded with chunks of quartz and all these different kinds of rocks that we have on earth. And those rocks are hard. You know, it's a chunk of quartz, you break it with a hammer. It's hard to do that on a rubble pile asteroid. It's not quite like that. These rocks are actually incredibly fragile. And it was Osiris Rex that dropped down onto Bennu, right? Do I have that right? Yes. Ryugu was Hayabusa 2, and they shot bullets at the asteroid to get samples. And yeah, Osiris Rex went down to the surface of Bennu and had kind of sort of a scoop. Not really, but that's, that was what it was kind of doing, collecting samples from the surface. And the thing buried itself half a meter into the asteroid when the sample arm basically touched the surface and there was notification, we have touched the surface. And even though it was moving very slowly, it basically kept going. And it just, if they hadn't had not retro rockets, but basically it was cold nitrogen gas pointing in the right direction to sort of slow it down and then move it away from the asteroid. If those things hadn't have turned on, it would have buried itself under the surface of this asteroid. The rocks would have just crumbled underneath it. And I realized, yeah, if, if you're an astronaut trying to land on the surface of a rubble pile, you better be careful because you're, you're going right in. There's a joke on the internet that I was led to believe that quicksand would be more of a, of a daily danger in my life from watching TV shows when I was a kid. Cause every, you know, everybody goes to an island and they, they're, oh, quicksand. Oh. But in fact, these rubble pile asteroids are kind of like that. And so I like the idea of you put your spaceship hundred meters away from the asteroid and you kind of jump down to the surface, you'd better be careful because you're going to sink right into it. These are all places that we've been and been able to send missions and check out up close, which is why we can get such a you know clear depiction of what these places are like. But from there, you jump out into places far beyond anywhere we've ever been, out into other star systems, binary star systems, nebulae, black holes. I know that we are right on the cusp of learning all these strange things with particularly instruments like the James Webb Space Telescope. So I'm, I'm thinking about the chapter that you wrote that very heavily features the TRAPPIST-1 system. So TRAPPIST-1 is what they call an ultra-cool M dwarf. It's a red dwarf star, but it's really, really, really low mass, really, really cool, I mean, by temperature, and feeble. It only shines with a fraction of a percent of the brightness of the sun, the luminosity of the sun. It's about the same size as Jupiter. It's really just barely a star. And surprisingly, it has a system of planets. It has seven known planets. All seven of them are very roughly Earth size. Some are smaller, some are bigger. But we think that all seven of them are rocky, terrestrial-like planets. And they all orbit the star extremely close in. 
And I don't think it's the first M dwarf that was found to have planets, but it was sort of this, the first one where it was an extremely small star, a lot of planets. I mean, the first planets discovered around them, four of them were discovered at the same time. And then three more later, they're all rocky, small worlds. And three of them are orbiting close enough to be in the habitable zone of that star. So if this is just a rocky ball with a decent atmosphere, liquid water could be on the surface. It wouldn't have to freeze or boil away that right away. That's all pretty amazing stuff. This was only discovered recently. The star was only discovered in the 1990s, the planets around it after that. And so this was all brand new. But we have observed it enough that I could actually say, if you're on planet E, let's call it planet E, the one that's habitable, what do the other ones look like in your sky? And after I wrote that chapter, and it was just a less than a month ago, JWST results showed that the innermost planet apparently doesn't have an atmosphere. As the planet passes in front of the star and behind the star, the light from the system changes a little bit and they can analyze that light and say, well, how much light do you expect to see? And there's just nothing that indicates that this planet has an atmosphere. It has, if it had an atmosphere, there would be changes in the amount of light and the character of the light from the system. And there wasn't anything like that. So they're like, well, that's just a, a barren rocky ball as hot as mercury or, or, or such. Maybe, maybe not that hot. I don't know the exact numbers, but in my book, I say, yeah, it's too hot. I, and I even say, listen, this is a system we've just discovered. We're learning more about this all the time. I was reading papers that had just been published as I'm writing this chapter. And so I even say, let's just say, uh, this is how things are. Let's imagine this and be there. And, and at some point you have to draw a line in the sand and just say, okay, this, this is how we're going to do it. I think the chapter on globular clusters was actually my favorite, specifically because it's so difficult to find information about that. And I'd always wondered, you know, what would it be like to be on the surface of one of those worlds when the sky is full of stars. Like the density of stars in that space is so high. And you answered so many of my questions about it. Like, could I read by starlight? How many shadows could I see? It was, it was beautiful. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. That was actually the first chapter I wrote. This book is based on an article I wrote in 2003 for Astronomy Magazine. It was just, it, it, again, it was just sort of this idea. It's like, people are always asking me this. What do these things look like if you were there? I mean, the internet was around, but not like it is now. And it was hard to look up a lot of this stuff. And in fact, when I looked up a paper on a globular cluster and, and had a list of the stars in it, you know, here's, you have this many red giants and this many blue stragglers, just these different kinds of stars that are in it. And I was disappointed because it looked to me like you wouldn't see that many bright stars in a globular cluster. Most of the stars in there are actually quite faint. These objects are so old that any stars more massive than the sun even, and some of them for even the sun, I mean, you're talking about an object that's, that's 12 billion years old. The sun doesn't have a 12 billion year lifespan. After 12 billion years, the sun's gonna turn into a red giant and go away. So any stars, even as massive as the sun are gone in a globular cluster. And so it kind of made sense to me that, oh gosh, really most of the stars are gonna be really faint. We now have way better observations uh, since 20 years ago. And yeah, uh, uh, a lot of these stars will be intensely luminous, um, uh, brilliant stars in your sky. A lot of them will cast shadows. And, and that part is, that part's a little bit tougher because if you have two light sources, your shadows get less distinct. If you have one light source, you have this, you know, really dark, deep shadow. But if you have two, the second light source fills in the shadow a little bit. It's the shadow's not as, there's not as much contrast. But I wrote it. So I wrote about globular clusters for the article. And then when I had to pitch the book, I had to write a, a, a chapter. 
And that's the chapter I, I decided to write. I probably should have done Saturn. It might have been an easier sell because it's not quite as weird as a globular cluster, but it, they did buy the book. So that, that worked out pretty well. Well, thanks for taking me on a journey through this book and for writing it. Well, terrific. Thank you so much for saying that. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for joining me, Phil. I really appreciate it. There were so many years I spent as an aspiring science communicator watching Phil's content and trying to learn how to up my game. It's really fun to get a chance to finally speak with him, and I had a wonderful time reading his book. You can find the extended version of my interview with Phil Plate in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org slash radio, or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up and a chance to win a copy of Under Alien Skies in our space trivia contest after this short break. Hi, this is Kate from the Planetary Society. How does space spark your creativity? We want to hear from you. Whether you make cosmic art, take photos through a telescope, write haikus about the planets, or invent space games for your family, really any creative activity that's space-related. We invite you to share it with us. You can add your work to our collection by emailing it to us at connect at planetary.org. That's connect at planetary.org. Thanks! Ready to level up your space game? Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society, and we are launching our brand new digital member community. This is a place that's built exclusively for Planetary Society members. Here you can connect with fellow members from around the world, join live events you won't get anywhere else, and delve deeper into the wonders of our cosmos and the missions that explore them. It's all about putting the society in the Planetary Society. I'll see you on the digital frontier. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts, the Chief Scientist of the Planetary Society. Hey, Bruce. Hey, Sarah. How you doing? Doing really well. <laughs> how about you? Hunky-dory, spiffy-keen. Spiffy-keen. All right. So what's up in the sky this week, Bruce? Well, uh, there's if you're in the part of the world where you can see it, there's a hybrid solar eclipse that has totality in kind of the central part of the eclipse. And then I'll, on the edges, it's a little farther away due to the curve of the Earth. So you get an annular eclipse. All of that follows a thin line over the northwestern corner of Australia and up to East Timor and western New Guinea islands of eastern Indonesia. But you'll get a partial eclipse visible throughout most of Indonesia and Australia. And so you can see planetary.org slash eclipse for more or check things out. That is April 20th. On April 22nd, Everyone without a cloudy sky can see the crescent moon hanging out near Venus, making a beautiful pairing over there in the west in the early evening. And you can start staring at the Lyrids meteor shower that peaks on the night uh, on the 22nd and 23rd. It's kind of a medium, middle of the road, average kind of meteor shower. So it's got about 20 meteors per hour at its peak. Seen from a dark site, you'll see fewer that get washed out from obviously a light polluted site. But the good news is uh, there won't be much moonlight. Crescent moon will set early in that evening, and so those evenings will not conflict much with your meteor watching. Oh, one more. We'll just throw in April 25th, too. The moon is near Mars, which is getting dimmer up higher in the sky than Venus, although Mars is starting to drop, too. Yeah, going back to that hybrid eclipse, I know we've talked before about total solar eclipses, but have you ever seen an annular solar eclipse? Yes, I have. I haven't done that yet. 
I just got lucky. I lived near one in the 90s. Somewhere on film that I don't know where it is, I have great pictures of it. It was just setting over the Pacific Ocean, as seen from Southern California. Very pretty with the annular eclipse. Now, it's still, as I point out to people, that difference between 99% of the sun covered and 100% is a really big deal. Total solar eclipse is way cooler, but annular, also very cool. Very cool. Anyway, let us move on, shall we? To this week in space history, 1970, Apollo 16 landed humans on the moon. And 20 years later, 1990, the Hubble Space Telescope was deployed. Still working. I mean, sure, it's had like five repair missions, but still really cool. If only JWST would last that long. Like (laughs) Hubble might still be working long after JWST goes cold. (laughs) Oh, That's the perfect time to go on to Random Space Fact. This time with extra enthusiasms. (laughs) So, Isa, congratulations on that JUICE spacecraft getting launched. That's great. And it's headed off to Jupiter several years from now. And it has uh, solar panels to power it. And they are the biggest solar panels out there on spacecraft to date, planetary spacecraft. And uh, that's because, of course, the light at Jupiter is, is not that big. So you're probably wondering, how big are those solar panels? What, what can we relate that to? Well, how about a badminton court? The total area of the solar panels on JUICE is about the same as badminton. That's a lot of solar panel. All right, we move on to a question that you know more than I, although I know some about. I asked everyone in the lore of the Destiny video games, on what planet was the city Freehold? How'd we do? We did really well on this one. People really loved this question, probably because it's a really fun game. The answer is that Freehold is located on Mars, or rather it was uh, before, you know, the fall of the golden age of humanity and uh, Mars getting taken over by a bunch of extraterrestrials and, uh, you know, the darkness game. Total bummer. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's why I said was the city of Freehold, just to... Spoilers, but our winner this week is Matthew Scully from Alexandria, Virginia. And Matthew, you'll be winning a Goodnight Thermal Oppy mug. I wonder if I have any like extra Destiny swag around here I can put in there. <laughs> but, you know, we got a lot of comments from people that were really excited about this. Uh, Richard Harrison from Akron, Ohio wrote us to say that he's a longtime fan of Destiny and can finally confidently answer the space trivia question. It just only took him four years to finally enter one. So (laughs) thanks for sending us your answer, Richard. And since so many people wrote in to say that they love Destiny 2, I thought I would take a moment just to say rest in peace to the voice actor who played Commander Zavala in Destiny 2, Lance Reddick, who passed away in March. But you know, I loved how people reacted in the game. I was playing Destiny on the night that Lance passed away and people gathered around his character in the video game and paid tribute to him for hours on end. And it went all through the weekend. So it was a really nice gamer moment. Wow. Yeah. So what's our question for this week, Bruce? Moving to a totally different topic. Where in the solar system is the best place to go? If you want to find sulfur dioxide frost, and in case there's any questions, since that's kind of vague, best is judged by me in case there's a question. But I don't think there will be. Best place to go if you want to find sulfur dioxide frost, go to planetary.org slash radio contest. And remember, it's according to Bruce. (laughs) 
Yes. You have until April 26th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us your answer. And whoever gets this one is going to win an actual copy of Phil Plate's new book, Under Alien Skies. So if you really like the interview that we just did, we will send you a copy of this book. All right, everybody, go out there, look at the night sky, and think about cattle. Cattle. Moo. Thank you, and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week to celebrate the launch of ESA's JUICE mission with project scientist Olivier Vitas. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our members who crave the exploration of other worlds. Mark Halverda and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.